0: Today we are finishing up a series called I Love My Church. And over the past several weeks, we've looked at uh, week one, we talked about why we love the church, why we love this church. Then we talked about how we love in community. That's how we live it out. And we love in our serving and we show love in our giving. Uh, Last week we talked about how we show love by sharing what we have in Christ with others around us. And today we are talking about how we love in celebrating Uh, this church this church family celebrates big life moments with each other we celebrate when there's the birth of a baby. One of our members right now, Jacob uh, and his wife Amanda, Jacob Gann and his wife Amanda, are at the hospital, and they she's been in labor for a long time now. I know she especially would covet your prayers. Uh, they're looking at maybe doing a C-section today, but but we're going to celebrate another addition uh, to this family. And we we celebrate births, we celebrate marriages, weddings. We love celebrating those with people. We celebrate even. Uh, lives of those who have gone on before us to be with the Lord. That's a, a celebration and a remembrance of their lives. There's just so many different things that we celebrate. But today and this week as a nation and around the world, people will be celebrating the most important event in all of human history. We're celebrating God come to earth to bring us the greatest gift that was ever given and His Son and the salvation that He brings. And it is our common celebration of that event that binds us together as a family. And that's one reason we should love the church is is how we are connected to each other through the greatest celebrations uh, that we have that we can celebrate together. Consistently woven throughout the Old Testament, there is this thread, this prediction, this promise that a Messiah was going to come on the scene. And God, throughout that time period, did everything he could possibly do to have a relationship with his people that he had set apart as his own. He, he blessed them. He provided for them. He, when they made foolish mistakes, he would help take care of them and, and make the corrections that needed to be made. He cleaned up their messes. He sent people to help them, and he sent prophets to warn them all the way through the ages. But they didn't listen. And seemingly they oftentimes didn't learn what God was trying to teach them. And so there was this repeating cycle over and over again. Of God blessing and then they're turning away from him. And suffering negative consequences and then God calling them back to him again. But all of it, in all of it, there was this common thread. That one was coming who would redeem and reconcile all of creation back to the Father. This Messiah that the prophet spoke of. And this week we celebrate the hinge of history. That moment 2,000 years ago when God himself traveled to earth at just the right time. That's what the Christmas story is really all about. Jesus comes because God had this desire to reconcile people back to himself, to make things right between us and God and between us and our fellow man. And only what Jesus came to do could accomplish that. So this is the hinge, the turning point of all of history that we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. But when Jesus comes, we find in Scripture that there are a lot of people who missed it. They missed out on who he was. There was this case of mistaken identity, if you will. You see, they had by that time in their own minds created this idea of what they thought the Messiah would look like, what he would act like, uh, the kind of things he would do and not do. They formed this idea of, of who he would be and, and, and when he came, how it would be this great majestic thing that would happen. and Certainly he would come through this, uh, this influential family line and, and everybody would know about it and they had this picture of how it was supposed to happen in their minds. And when Jesus came, it wasn't like that at all. He didn't come the way they thought he would come. He didn't act the way they thought he should act. He didn't not do some things they thought he shouldn't do, and he did some things they thought he shouldn't do. And they missed the opportunity they had to see and to know the Messiah when he appeared. I mean, if you already have strong beliefs in something, that you're not interested in listening to the facts, Right? You got your mind made up. Don't bother me with the facts. I already know what I think and what I believe. And so don't tell me Jesus is the Messiah. I've already decided what the Messiah is supposed to be like. And that's not Jesus. And since that time, people have been doing the same thing over and over again. Even in our country and our culture right now, people have formed their own opinion of what God should be like and what He should teach and what He should do and not do and what Jesus should be like and, and what He should do and not do. And because Jesus doesn't fit what they think He ought to fit, they reject the Messiah, the one God sent to reconcile and to redeem. This case of mistaken identity is more common than you might think. I mean, even in his own hometown of Nazareth, when Jesus was here in the flesh, they tried to throw him off a cliff for blasphemy of claiming to be the Son of God. I mean, the people who should have known him best are the very people who didn't have his back, who didn't take up for him, and didn't understand and recognize who he really was. And in scripture, we read about this this Christmas story, and it's, it's very interesting when you read the gospel accounts how. Each gospel writer took a little bit of a different slant on how they recorded and, and, and reported the coming of the Messiah. Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience. So Matthew's gospel is filled with prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Because the Jews would, would be connected to that strongly. And, and it would be a way that he could show proof that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. So in Matthew 1, 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he goes on to give the whole lineage of Jesus. Why? Because he wanted them to connect that with what the prophets had said about the coming of this Messiah. And then you've got Mark, who doesn't really even deal with the birth at all in his gospel, he starts with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, his appearing to to do the ministry work that he was doing here. Again, that was predicted and prophesied that the Messiah would do those things that Jesus was doing, and Mark emphasized those things. John was totally different. He he helped us understand what we need to know about Christmas from more of a 10,000-foot view. Uh, The big picture of what was going on. He does it in a poetic fashion. Remember, in in John 1, verses 1 and 2, he said this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see, John wanted us to understand that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. Jesus was God. He had been there all along. In fact, he calls Jesus the Word that was made flesh. And how did God create everything that exists? He spoke it into creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Word is Jesus. He was there creating everything that was created. That's the Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, who came to be clothed with the flesh. You see, I know it's easy to get focused on the baby And forget that this baby was God come to earth. You're probably familiar with Luke's account. I want to spend most of our time today on that. And Luke, if you want to turn there, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. If you want to pull it up on your smartphone or tablet, we'll put these verses up on the screen for you. You're familiar with this story, but listen, don't don't let the the fact that you're familiar with it keep you from really paying attention to it. Sometimes when we're really familiar with something, we just, we kind of, Don't really focus on it like we need to. So I want you to focus on it as I read through it out loud here. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he is the Messiah. who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. In Luke's account and the other accounts of the coming of the Messiah, I want today to focus on three primary reasons we need to celebrate as God's people. The first reason is this. This this is amazing to me. It's always amazed me. But it's it's the fact that God uses ordinary people to do His work. Flawed, imperfect, sometimes totally unexpected people to do the most important work in the history of the world. He, He by the way, if he's going to use people, there's no other kind. <laughs> right? We are all flawed. And so if he's going to do work through people, he's going to do it through flawed people, ordinary flawed people. And and he uses people, he has throughout history, just think back, they're all through the Old Testament, all the history we have of God working on the earth. He used people like Abraham and David and Esther and the list goes on and on. And we know those names today because they're in Scripture and we know what God did through them. But to start with, they were just unknown, average, ordinary people. Very flawed people. And even as God used them, they were still flawed people. And even after God did great things through them to bless the world, they were still very flawed people. And friends, we ought to celebrate that because we are one. We resemble that remark, don't we? And so we ought to celebrate the fact that in today's culture, in today's world, in today's church at Lakeshore, God can use us flawed people, as messed up as we are, to accomplish His work and His will and His power can be seen in our weaknesses and in our flaws. We ought to celebrate what God can do and does do, in spite of our flaws. In the Christmas story, he used a young virgin girl named Mary and her husband-to-be, Joseph, who was a simple carpenter. When God picked them, nobody knew their name outside of their own family and the people they worked with. Nobody thought they were going to be famous. Nobody thought they were going to be in Scripture, uh, immortalized forever, having been used by God to bring his son into the world. Nobody had a clue any of that was going to happen. There was no indication in advance that these people were destined for greatness. But what God did was great through them. Ordinary, in fact, they would be considered in their culture more the peasant class people. They were not a wealthy family. They were not a well-to-do family. They weren't in positions of any power or authority or influence. But God used them. To bring the Messiah to a world that had been looking for him for hundreds of years you see God uses ordinary people they became heroes of the faith not because of who they were but because of who God is and because they were willing to be obedient to what God was calling them to do ordinary people who are obedient are the people God's going to use Ordinary, flawed, messed up people who decide, I will obey what God's telling me to do. Those are the ones that God does great things through them to change the world forever. We can all be one of those people. Every one of us can be one of those people. When you look at it, the Bible could really be divided into three general chapters or phases. The Old Testament could be seen as uh, summed up in the phrase, Jesus is coming. That's really what all the Old Testament is about. The Messiah's coming. He's on the way. Be looking for Him. God's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. All the Old Testament was leading up to and pointing to the coming of the Messiah. the New Testament, and the Gospels, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They could be described as He's here. Jesus is here now. He's revealed. He's, he's, He's revealed Himself. God's showing who He is. He's here. The one we've been looking for the whole time, He's here now. Then you've got Acts uh, through Revelation, the rest of the New Testament. And and basically, that could be summed up in the words, Now that He's come, here's how you need to live. Here's how you need to live as you wait for Him to return. This is what life is supposed to be like for you now that Jesus has come. You see, the voice that spoke the universe into existence, that that thundered from Mount Sinai, that whispered to Elijah, Elijah, When he came as that baby in the manger, all he could do was coo and and cry and gurgle. and, And yet that was the same voice that spoke all of creation into existence. Can you imagine that? You see, it changes everything. That God used ordinary flawed people. And I love the fact that he picked shepherds out on the hillside to be the first ones to come see Jesus. Other than his own family. I mean, Mary and Joseph weren't weren't aristocrats by any means. They were in the peasant class, but shepherds? Shepherds would be seen in their uh, hierarchy, order of classes in their culture. They would be seen even below Mary and Joseph. And yet God invites them personally by the angels appearing to come see Jesus. You think God might be trying to tell us something about ordinary people and how important ordinary people are to Him? How valued they are to Him? People today struggle so much with self worth and self image. Don't forget how God sees you. Yes, you're ordinary. Yes, you're flawed. And those are the very people God does his greatest work through, that God values the most, that God invites in and welcomes into the greatest event in all of human history the coming of the Messiah. Well, secondly, we can celebrate something else. Not only. Not only does God use ordinary people, but we can celebrate the fact that God's got a plan. I have sometimes been known known for uh, having ideas without detailed plans. Uh, Sometimes I get excited about something and I'm ready. I want to charge ahead and I haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do it, exactly step by step what needs to happen. Uh, But I got this idea and I got this vision and and I really want to see it happen. And all that's great. Visionaries, we need visionaries. We need people who have those visions. But you know what we also need? We need people who can establish a plan on how to get that done. The amazing thing about God and the mind of God is that God not only had the vision of reconciling the world back to himself he had a plan an amazing plan to make that happen his plan is to give a gift in person to us and and the gift of course is the gift of salvation that he would save people from their sins that, and God came up with that plan and when he did he wasn't doing it for himself as much as he was doing it for us he knew what we needed he knew He knew how desperately we needed it, and he knew we could not do it for ourselves. And because he loved us, he had this plan, this specific purpose that he was working toward, this gift that that none of us would be worthy to receive, that none of us would ever deserve to get, a gift no one else could give. Only God could give us Jesus, and only Jesus could give us salvation. And yet God is the one who came up with the plan. I love 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15, where Paul just cries out, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's like he was just overwhelmed with the joy and the magnitude of what God had done through his plan to save us. He had a plan to send his son. And here's what we need to know. He had that plan before he even created the world. I want you to think about the implications of that. Before Jesus spoke us human beings into existence he already knew the plan that he would have to come here empty himself of equality with God take on the flesh as a baby who couldn't do anything for himself grow up to be despised and rejected and beaten and nailed to a cross and still he spoke the words and created us what Amazing love that is, knowing the price he was going to have to pay for us and still speaking us into existence. You see, the plan was already set. The scripture says Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever established. The plan was already there. Because God has that foreknowledge. He knew we would rebel. He knew we would commit sin. He knew their sacrifice was going to be needed before he ever brought us into existence. And still, he created us. God willingly gave the most generous gift, knowing that many people would reject it. Many people would misunderstand it. Many people would mistake his identity. He gave it knowing that many people would not return the favor and give their love and their heart back to him. He gave the gift even though he knew that many people would reject him completely. But he felt like we were worth that sacrifice. We have every reason to celebrate that God had a plan, and that plan included you and it included me, that he would give that gift to us. So we celebrate that God can use ordinary flawed people, but it's because of the gift that came through his plan that God can use flawed, ordinary people like us because we can be cleansed and forgiven and empowered by His Spirit that dwells in us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So yes, God uses ordinary people and God has a plan that we should celebrate because He included us in that plan. But there's a third reason we need to celebrate today. That is that God keeps His promises. It's the attribute of God that I love the most. That he loves his promises. Now, it's rooted in his love. I'm thankful God is love. And the fact that he keeps his promises is rooted in his love. So I love this attribute of God, that he keeps his promises. Back in Genesis, all the way back, God promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed by a descendant of Adam. You remember that? Way back in the garden, after they ate that fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, after the curse had come... God said to the serpent that his, there was a descendant coming from Adam that would crush the head of the serpent. It was a prophecy of Jesus, of the Messiah, who would come and destroy the work of Satan, who came to kill and to destroy us. God's plan was already in effect when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. The plan was already set before that ever happened. And God keeps His promises. He promised that one was going to come, that one was going to conquer Satan and death and and the curse of sin. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. God keeps His promises. God promised good news through prophetic scriptures. I love what it says in 2 Peter. It says we have the more sure word of prophecy. If you don't understand what prophecy is, prophecy is really two things in one. Prophecy, prophets spoke forth for God. They brought God's message to the people. You see, some people only look at prophecy as predicting the future. That's part of prophecy. But there's so much more to prophecy than that. It's speaking the will of God to the people, representing God to the people. That was the work of the prophet. And God spoke through the prophets all through the Old Testament. We have the record of God revealing Himself and teaching His will and, and, and leading His people and providing for them. And, but there was also in those messages the prophecies of the Messiah. And you know what that part of prophecy is? It's promises. See, it's not just a prediction when it's God saying it. It's a promise. There have been a lot of people who have come along since the prophets of God, even in today's culture, who claim to be prophets. And they claim to predict stuff all the time. And they are saying, these are my predictions. Very few of them have had the audacity to promise they were going to happen. You know why? Because they can't control whether or not they happen. They are just trying to say, I think this is the way it's going to work. I'm trying to read the signs and say, here's what it looks like. God didn't have to read the signs. He's the one who posted the signs. He knew what was going to happen, when it was going to happen. And in fact, he orchestrated what was going to happen. And so when he spoke through the prophets, he wasn't just saying, I I think this might be the way it works. He was promising this is what's going to happen. And, And these prophecies spoke these prophets spoke as God gave them direction and what happened was these predictions actually came true that's the amazing thing about the prophecies of God and I want you to understand something these prophecies weren't for something that might happen next week or next month or next year for example some people are prophesying a recession well join the club that happens every so often we have one I would look good if I just prophesied based on history and the cycle of history. We could all prophesy that stuff. All of us could. There's nothing magical or miraculous about that. What is miraculous is prophesying something in great detail that that nobody could make happen except the one who is promising it. And to do it hundreds of years before it happened. And still get every detail exactly right. You see, that's what the prophets of God did. That's how God spoke through them and gave great detail about what was going to happen. Uh, Let me give you an example. There are over 300 Messianic prophecies. When I say Messianic, I mean prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, they didn't know it was Jesus when it was prophesied, but but these were prophecies about a Messiah who was going to come to be the Savior. Over 300 of them were prophesied. There are 60 what they call major ones, and over 250 what they call minor prophecies concerning the Messiah. And you know what we find? Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of them. Every single one. Think about the outlandish predictions. Let's look at a few of them. Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So this Messiah is going to be born where? Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem was at the time of the prophecy? A podunk little nowhere town that nobody knew about. An average population of about a thousand people. How many of you came from a small town like that? Yeah. Is it real noteworthy? Probably not. Neither was Bethlehem. And by the way, Mary and Joseph did not live in Bethlehem, did they? And here they are pregnant and going to have a child. But if it was going to be the Messiah, where did it have to be born? Bethlehem. And how did it end up that they ended up in Bethlehem at the exact time that the baby was going to be born? Caesar Augustus issued a decree for taxation. Now, is Caesar Augustus known to have been a godly man? No, not at all. You see how God can use ordinary flawed people? Even a ruler who doesn't believe in him at all? God orchestrated events to get Mary and Joseph over to Bethlehem at exactly the moment that the child was going to be born. Just coincidence, right? Just coincidence. What about this in Isaiah 7, verse 14? It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's over 700 years before Mary and Joseph come on the scene. And yet he says there's going to be a virgin birth. You talk about going out on a limb with a promise. That's a biggie. Never happened before. Never happened since. I don't care what anybody tells you. Matthew one twenty two, it shares a fulfillment of that after it announced that. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. You see, the gospel writers connected the prophecies with the events so that people could see God kept every single promise, and He did it in Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. By His wounds, we are healed. That's 700 years before Jesus would be arrested and nailed to a cross. What about Judas' betrayal of Jesus? It's talked about back in Zechariah chapter 11. It said he would be betrayed by a friend, and it added this detail for 30 pieces of silver. What did Judas get paid when he betrayed Jesus to his enemies? 30 pieces of silver. The list goes on and on and on. What about his death on the cross? The execution method of crucifixion is predicted 800 years before anybody had ever been crucified. Nobody had ever used that method of execution at the time Psalm 22 was written. Verse 16, it says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. That's exactly what they did with Jesus. And nobody had heard of crucifixions when that was written. You see the overwhelming evidence that God keeps His promises. He always has. In every detail of His promises. This is no accident. I shared this before a long time ago. But I was reading it again. Just It just bolsters our faith and, and God's promises. Peter Stoner who was a mathematician at uh, Pasadena Community College years ago. Did a study of compound probability. And he did a study to find out. What if Jesus fulfilled just eight of those 300 prophecies? What are the odds? What's the likelihood mathematically speaking. Of a person who is born in the earth. Being born in Bethlehem, for example, is that like 1 in 10,000? Is that 1 in 300,000? What's the likelihood that they would be born in Bethlehem? And he did that with eight different prophecies. And he found out the odds of one man coming along and coincidentally fulfilling all eight prophecies were 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's the mathematical odds. And that's just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies prophecies this could not have just happened by chance my friends even science says this could not happen by chance this had to be someone orchestrating this planning this fulfilling this in every detail and keep in mind that most of these prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled a person would have no control over them how many of you controlled where you were born How many of you controlled that you'd be betrayed by a friend for an exact certain amount of money? Could you control that? How many of you could control the idea that you would be crucified or killed by some method of death that nobody even knows about right now? You see, you can't control that stuff. But God can. And God did. God keeps... His promises. You may not keep a promise. I may not keep a promise. But God always keeps His promises. So God, before the foundation of the world. Knowing that He would have to use flawed people. Established this plan. And worked throughout all of history to lead up to just the right time. And that's the time we celebrate this week. That we call Christmas. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this. But when the set time had fully come, do you think Jesus came at just an arbitrary time? No. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption into sonship. You see, God's purpose was always, from the very beginning, to send his son to be the atoning sacrifice. our sins and that's why the angel said to the shepherds unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior a messiah this was God's plan all along and he said this is good news for all people that means it's good news for you and good news for me one of the first men to ever walk on the moon was a former astronaut named James Irwin And you may not know this, but James Irwin was a Christian, and after his journey to the moon for the rest of his life, every time he signed a letter, he signed it with this statement. There's one thing better than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. James Irwin understood. God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. And what God wants more than anything is for us to be in a right relationship with Him. And if you've never decided to take that step, if you've never said, Lord, I confess that I've blown it, I know I'm a sinner, and I I want to come to you repenting of my sin, I want to be washed clean and made new, then you can take that step today. Because that is really what Christmas is all about. I hear... Uh, I'm going to confess something. I may have to turn in my man card. I like watching the Hallmark Christmas movies. I didn't mean to like them. They suck you in. And I happened to have one, you know, flipping through, and one was on, and I thought, I'll I'll see, I'll watch it. And I couldn't turn away from it. And you know what? I knew what was going to happen. I knew how it was going to end. I knew she was going to fall in love with him and decide not to go back to the big city. I knew that. (laughs) And they were going to save the end. It wasn't going to have to close. I knew that. And they're beautiful stories. And I hear people say, oh, family, that's what Christmas is all about. Children, that's what Christmas is all about. It's about the children. They're getting their gifts and seeing the joy on their faces. Nothing wrong with any of those things. They are beautiful traditions connected to Christmas. But that is not what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about the Savior. God's plan to reconcile us back to Him even though we've sinned and separated ourselves from Him because of our sin. And if you make it about anything else, you've missed it completely. Like the people who missed the Messiah when He came. I don't want that to happen to anybody here. Don't miss what God is offering you, the gift that he's come to bring you. Let's pray together. Father, Father we, know, we know intellectually Christmas is about Jesus, but all the other things are so much fun, and the, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not evil. They're, they're good things. They're fun traditions, and we love to celebrate them. But, Father, help us to remember that your plan all along was to use ordinary flawed people like us to bring the message of salvation, the gift of salvation, the good news of salvation to everyone in the world. Father, for anyone today who hasn't accepted your offer of that gift, may this be the day that they not only recognize the gift, but they receive it, and they're changed by it, and they go out from this place, brand new, offering the gift to others. Father, may we remember what Christmas is really all about. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.